had someone to love me, someone to call me their own. Oh, I wish I had someone to live with, cause I'm tired of living Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing, drawing texts from the Library of America, a wonderful series of collecting the American canon quite systematically and with a lot of thought to diversity and and, and different genres of writing. It's, it's a great thing. And, and if you haven't you know, looked at it. It's it's worth looking look looking at, and most libraries have many many volumes, so it's not a thing you necessarily have to buy. It's just nice to have around, and they're they're a nice window into American writers, especially ones maybe you didn't see before. That's why I subscribe to them, is because you know you always get new stuff and stuff you probably wouldn't have picked up on your own. Um, anyways, uh, we're we're at the end here of this very this series on, on Theodore Dreiser. In fact, I recorded this entire series, nine episodes, and in just a little bit over a week. I plan to do like 200 pages a day and one episode a day, and I end up, you know, being distracted and doing a couple days doing two episodes and getting a little ahead of the plan, so it got a little bit jumbled. But, you know, I kind of stuck to it. I, I wanted to do a quick and rapid series, mostly because, you know, I, I, I don't know. I got this volume from the library, and I had to get it done before I... I returned to Taiwan, which I'll be doing in a in about a week, and then I then I spend five or six days in Taiwan, and then off to China. In fact, by the time you you listen to this, I'll, I'll probably already be in China, uh, starting my new life there. But um, you know, that's why this, this the format for this was was maybe a little bit different, a little bit more rushed, and not as planned. But I think it took the advantage was I. I didn't dwell on this stuff too long. It was more my immediate response to each episode. So I kind of liked it. Um, I'm going to try different approaches to different books in the future when I'm, once I'm settled in, in China, we'll see. I, I might do some more uh, formal uh, kind of essay style approach if, if time allows in the, in the future. But we'll see. I kind of like this approach though. It's, it's more reactionary. It's more, you know, just what do I feel about it? So anyways, uh, we're at the end here of this long novel, 900-page novel um, by Theodore Dreiser, written in the 1920s, 1925, um, to be precise. Uh, the, the, the first novel he had written in a decade at that point, so it's, it was kind of a, a comeback of sorts to prominence for, for Dreiser, and it, it was a very important novel for him. It, it got made into like operas, it got made into films, it got it got stage treatments of various of you know in various manifestations. So it it shows up in a lot of different things. It really becomes a part of American culture. Now, I never read it before. It has the first time I came across this novel. I, I think I've heard of it, but you know, I never really gave it much thought until I, until I picked it up in the library just a couple weeks ago. But um, so what what happened in this novel? Well we follow this young man, Clyde Griffiths, as he grows up uh, in a religious household involved in the Salvation Army and other mission, mission, urban mission work. We see how he kind of departs from his family goals and becomes an, a, a working class man involved in kind of urban consumer pleasures. He starts getting involved with prostitutes and eventually starts dating women. Uh, after an incident, he's forced to flee Kansas City, a hit and run incident that he was involved in. He's forced to flee. 
and he bounces around from job to job, eventually landing a job at his uncle's collar factory in upstate New York, where he rises up to become a supervisor. He f- essentially falls in love with one of the women, the, the farm girls who work in the factory, seduces her. They have a, a relationship, a pretty hot and heavy relationship for a while, eventually leading to her pregnancy. But just as that happens, he, the, the woman's name is Roberta Alden, if you're not following along to, uh, with this series, you're just joining us. Anyways, he at the same time he gets her pregnant, he falls in love with a, a, a woman, Sandra Fitchley, from a higher class, a class he wants to enter into. So he abandons Roberta, tries to get her to have an abortion, fails to get her an abortion, eventually decides essentially to abandon her. When she, when Roberta approaches him and says, you got to care for me and marry me, or I'm going to expose you, he makes the decision to kill her. He takes her to, he promises to marry her, takes her to a lake kind of to celebrate with the plans of killing her there. He backs out at the last minute, but nevertheless, she gets hit in the head, falls in the water and dies. He's quickly captured by the police, uh, which spend in almost no time, track him down as the culprit. And then he's put on trial and in a big national uh, a trial that captivates the national attention, right? It's, it's a New York state trial, but it captivates the attention of the nation through the media accounts of it and through the drama of it, you know, and the, the narrative of it, the narrative of a, of a rich, you know, son of a or cousin or nephew of a factory owner seduces a a farm girl an innocent farm girl you know gets her pregnant and and then murders her in cold blood when you know she wants to get married the defense try to put up a that they try his defense attorneys try to put up a defense they fail and Clyde Griffiths is is convicted um by the jury very quickly, right? There's very little doubt in the jury's mind, mostly due to the fact that Clyde, when he testified to his defense, uh, opened up the door for the prosecution to step-by-step undermine his, his, his case through documents, through evidence, through his own words at times, but through his letters and through the, the kind of the, the circumstantial evidence he left behind undermines almost every point of his defense leaving the jury really no choice but to convict him and the judge sentences him to death. And that's pretty much where the, the last, where, where we are when we enter into the last part of, of the novel. The last hundred pages or so basically are about Clyde Griffith on death row. Now, these scenes on death row are really wonderful. They are almost a horror novel. I kept, when I was reading this, I kept thinking of like, a Stephen King novel, and I, Stephen King only really wrote the one novel on death about death row called *The Green Mile*. He had other prison stories, but Maine didn't have the death penalty, so he didn't didn't have those that death penalty drama. And of course, *The Green Mile* is from the perspective of a of a of a guard, right? But f- there's something that was so familiar to me about these scenes on on death row, right? Um, one in particular struck me, and I just want to pointed out because it I couldn't get it out of my head when I when I when I read it because again it's something I've seen so often in 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 literature or film especially film depictions of death row especially with the electric chair um, where the de- it's just it's a really, really interesting device that is you have the prisoners in the death row in the in the death wing of, of the prison right not many of them always, right? Four or five. And then someone gets dragged off 
their appeals run out, you know, the warrants come down from, you know, the, their day has come, right? They get dragged off in, in handcuffs to the electric chair. Now, in other times, it would have been to the gallows, right? And then the people in the jail wouldn't necessarily know the moment this guy died. Now, maybe if there's gunshots, like if you're dragged in the back room and shot, maybe the, the other prisoners might hear it, or maybe not. I don't know. But, you know, with the electric chair, there's, especially in these earlier, when electricity was still early in those early years, in the early 20th century, you had the same circuitry for the electric chair as for the overall electricity of the prison, right? So when the electric chair gets activated and they do it three times, right? Make sure the lights go out in the prison or they flicker, the lights flicker. And that scene is described here in really good detail. And in kind of, it really st struck me because I've seen this before in, in films and stuff like where the electricity for the electric chair takes all the electricity from the, or the electric chair takes all the electricity from the prison, and the lights flicker. So the point here is then the prisoners know the exact moment their comrade, their fellow death row inmates, even if just for a short period of time, right, they knew each other. But they had so much in common, right? That, that's, that's kind of the interesting thing about death row, and you feel that in this novel as well. These people are just thrown together. They don't know each other. Maybe they've heard, in fact, in this case, Clyde Griffiths is known to them and they, they expected him to be coming soon because they followed the news too. But they're, they're kind of forced to be friends because they, 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 from different backgrounds, they've committed different crimes, you know, and they've done it for different reasons. And they're from, and they're a diverse ethnic group, right? They're from diverse ethnic groups. They're in the, in this case, you have a Chinese, you have Italians, uh, you have people who don't speak English, you have people who do it. It's it's kind of a motley crew of, of criminals, but they all have the same fate, right? They're, the end of the line is the same for all of them. And they all have like hope and, or maybe they hold on to a little bit of hope that there'll be an appeal or that the or the governor will change his mind and, and grant a, a stay of execution or something. There's always that hope. And, you know, Dreiser plays with this idea that maybe, you know, they all had, they, you know, Clyde thinking maybe, maybe, maybe. You know, it's not really the end for me, right? And he f he f goes between hope and despair quite rapidly. But anyways, back to the lights, right? That that all these prisoners who have the same fate that they're going to be in that chair someday and they're going to experience that, and they f they know the moment that this person dies, and it's so powerful, and it's sometimes people kind of make jokes or make weird comments about that one guy says like now he knows what's on the other side or something but you know that's i think that's a powerful thing because nowadays you know no, the other prisoners in death row you know if someone gets an injection or something they'll hear maybe later that so-and-so died you know obviously when they're taken off on their last day people know but it's, it's about knowing the exact moment it's about living that moment and seeing yourself in that chair and knowing that, that that moment's coming for you. It's horror, really. And, and that's why I was thinking of a Stephen King novel. It, it's like a psychological horror um, going on. It's all because the lights <laughs> aren't very modern, right? It's all because the electrical, there's only the one electric current for all the lights in, in the prison, and they're all tied together. Um, and the fact that it happens three times, right? Because it's like the first is, I guess, what kills them, but they try two more times just to make sure. It's a great scene, and it only happens really once, but it's so powerful, and it's just the, the moment in which they know this, this person's dead and, and done, even if you're not there.
you know, people die around us all the time. We, we just don't know. But, you know, to to, to have it advertised that way is so interesting. I, I don't know if it was intentional on Dreiser's part, if it's just a, a function of it, but it's it's kind of cool. And I've seen it so many times in, in other fiction. I, I couldn't help but be struck by that. It's, I don't know if this is the first time. Again, I'm sure there was other death row stories, especially sensational literature. And I, I, I keep saying that in this series, but I wonder, you know, there's a lot of like sensationalist themes here there's the kind of themes that would have been in kind of popular crime fiction the the seducer the the, the factory the factory girl gets seduced by someone right or the murder the brutal murder or the dramatic trial or the death row scene or the you know any a lot of the stuff we see in this novel you know by Theodore Dreiser, one of America's greatest novelists of the era would you know would have been stuff you could have come across in more pulpy more vulgar fiction uh, maybe not as well done or so, but but those those moments are, are things you would have expected and you would expect to see in that kind of fiction. Now, as for the plot of the final pages of this novel, there's not that much to talk about. Essentially, Clyde gets taken to this prison uh, to wait out the last months of his life. I think it's a little bit, it's like a year or so that he's there. Um, the big background of going on, going on here is that the Griffiths family that, sponsored and funded the defense doesn't want to deal with appeal they're just done with them right they think okay he's guilty we can we can deal with the politics of what this means for the family business or anything you know but we're not going to double down on on this guy this guy's done for and he's not really our family right he's just a, a nephew so the only one who can come up with the money for the appeal is really his mother and his mother comes to visit him and she commits to raising the money for the appeal. The lawyers say it'll cost like a $2,000, which is a lot of money. It's, it's, you know, it's probably, I don't know, I guess 30, $40,000 in, in modern currency. I'd have to convert 1925 to, to now. I, I, you know, it's, it's about what it is though. It's, it's kind of like 20 to one or 15 to one, depending on the, the year. So she has, and she has no money. They're, they're like a broke family. They're very poor. All the money they make is kind of invested in this mission work. Clyde doesn't have anything. There's no other funding. So she actually has to go and kind of beg for money. And she, she goes to churches and she wants to put on kind of give lectures and collect donations for the, her legal defense. So basically push her son's case that he's innocent you know, to the public and get funding. But unfortunately, most of the churches don't want anything to do with Clyde Griffiths or this case. They don't want to be seen as being associated with them. The, the Catholics don't want anything to do with her, partially because they're Protestant and they're involved in that kind of mission work, and which was often very hostile to Catholicism. She eventually gets like a synagogue to agree to hold these meetings and she starts out getting a fair number of people, but it, it gets less and less over time. She has to send a lot of this money back to support her family and support her own life, life on the road, trying to raise money. Eventually, she ends up with like a thousand bucks, which she takes to the lawyers. And the lawyers agree to do the appeal. I mean, they, they just want money, right? And they, they agree to do it for a thousand. But they you get the sense they sort of don't take it that seriously. They don't think there's much hope. They, they, they told... Clyde like oh we'll appeal and you'll be fine in in reality they they don't think they have much of a case they do make their they do file the paperwork they file the appeal goes to the courts and and the appeal doesn't go anywhere 
it's it's rejected. Basically, they're trying to say that the like the jury was tampered by the kind of the sensationalist of it, sensationalism of the trial. They're also trying to say that the courts, you know, used letters that they probably shouldn't have used to kind of build up. They're like, there's too much pathos in the trial, and that was the reason Clyde was. Uh, convicted and so it muddied the waters that was their case in the appeal it gets turned down uh, you know as we expect all that's left now is the the hope of the governor so the mother starts writing letters to the governor pleading for clemency for her son these letters get replied to very succinctly like you know we don't see any reason to offer to give you that sorry for your loss upcoming loss and so then eventually Clyde runs out of time. And in the very last pages of the novel, we see Clyde's final moments. The actual execution, I think, takes place off screen. So that that's a lot of what's happening. And then alongside that, then we have Clyde's life on death row. And we have the people he meets there, the people he interacts with. His day-to-day life is described to some detail, the amount of visitors he gets. He meets a couple interesting people. Some people don't even speak English, but he, he does sort of have a social life in prison but mostly what this area of this time focuses on is his you know his fear of the chair and the the, the chair that's going to take his life someday is is heavy on his mind he eventually gets uh he starts meeting with a pastor and a, a preacher and he seems to convert to christianity and he seems to embrace christ so we got that kind of cliche story about the death row imnate finding finding Jesus at the end and you know we've got a lot of people working on his soul at the end and there's that story it doesn't really help him save his life at all but it's it's supposed to give him comfort right and supposed to help him face his final his final days he does seem to now the guy he's talking to the reverend is is a guy named McMillan and he does seem to confess uh, mostly his 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 sins, what he did wrong, and he he seems to be fairly honest with McMillan about his to the degree of his guilt. Uh, he doesn't take full responsibility yet, but his his mom's in anguish this whole time, trying to save his life, desperate to save his life, but also fearful for his soul. She's very she's very religious, and she's got this anxiety over his his salvation um, throughout the song and. Partially because he's confiding in McMillan and not her on these spiritual issues. And she feels very lonely by her son's kind of refusal to talk to her about these spiritual matters. Something that was always the case throughout his life, right? He never honestly talked to his mom about their differences about both spirituality and religion. And that's partially part of the tragedy of, of the life, of, of his life. Quote, and because of that refusal on her son's part to confide in her, Mrs. Griffith tortured not only spiritually but personally. Her own son, so near death and not willing to say what already apparently he had said to Mr. McMillan. Would not God ever be done with this testing her? And yet on account of what Mr. McMillan had already said, that he considered Clyde, whatever his past sins, contrite and clean before the Lord, a youth truly ready to meet his maker, she was prone to rest. The Lord was good, he was merciful, in his bosom was peace. What was death, what life, to one whose heart and mind were at peace with him? It was nothing. A few years, and she and Asa, and after them, his brothers and sisters would come and join him, and all the ministries here would be forgotten. All the miseries here would be forgotten. And without peace in the Lord, the full, beautiful realization of his presence, love, care, and mercy. So that's where she gets some comfort 
at the end of her son's life. Um, now, one more thing I want to talk about here as I bring an end to this series on the American tragedy is his feeling on the death penalty. I couldn't find in my searching, you know, any clear evidence, like any clear articles or anything on him being anti-death penalty or something. And, you know, I don't even know if that was much of a move. I know the ACE, the early ACLU, what was it called? I think it was, at the time it was just called the Civil Liberties Union or something. Um, was, you know, thought about death penalty issues. I'm sure there was opposition to it. But Dreiser seems to really see kind of a brutal logic in just the way justice is implemented and how obviously the trial was not fair. I don't know if any trial is fair, right? It's always, you know, it's it's a competition, right? And the better lawyer will win. There's nothing fair about that. It's just... You know, whoever can afford better lawyers will be more likely to get off or or, or not if they, if, if they can't afford it, right? If they, can't, if they just get a public defender. So there's nothing fair about the judicial system. I think he knows that. But he's more obsessed with like the, the kind of the wheel of justice and how it just kind of grinds and grinds and grinds. It, it, it's unstoppable, right? It's like a, it's an institutional behemoth, a monster that just consumes lives and consumes people's existence. And justice is almost secondary to that. And there's a really wonderful passage. It's right at the end of the novel. It's on page 926. Um, Quote, But apart from all this and much worse, he was locked up here, and they would not let him go. There was a system, a horrible routine system, as long since he had come to feel it to be so. It was iron. It moved automatically like a machine without the aids or hearts of men. These guards... They with their letters and inquiries, their pleasant and yet really hollow words, their trips to do little favors or to take the men he in and out of the yard or to the baths. They were iron too, mere machines, automatons, pushing and pushing and yet restraining and restraining one within these walls as ready to kill as to favor in case of opposition, but pushing, 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 always towards that little door over there from which there's no escape, no escape, just on and on until at last they would push him through never to return, never to return. And that's that's some of Clyde's last thoughts is just the relentlessness of this machine and of, you know, describing these men as iron, just pushing, you know, everything they do is leading to that door. And it's, it's just it's, it's inevitable. Right. And you almost get the sense he wants it over with at some point. You know, when he loses hope, it's just, you know, get it done because I, 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 I was just walking to it otherwise. Um, and that that's the novel. That's pretty much how it ends. Uh Clyde is taken away to be executed. We don't really see it. Um, we just kind of see the him walk off. Um, we the last scenes we get are actually Reverend McMillan thinking about Clyde and and his his last moments. Then we get a little section called a souvenir, which actually shows. Um, well, in the souvenir, which is like an epilogue almost. Um, it's a really interesting title for an epilogue, I think, The Souvenir. But Dreiser goes back to that first scene where he, we're back on the streets. We're back with the Griffiths family. Yet it's it's bigger and it's different now. Now we have, like, Clyde's nephew there, you know, the product of that illegitimate um, pregnancy of his sister that happened early in the novel. And now he's being raised in the same way. And Mrs. Griffith is just convinced that she will not make the same mistakes with... That he won't make the same mistakes that she made with Clyde with Russell. That's his name, Russell. So 
that it's just we get this kind of circle here this you know she's making the same mistake she's not learning her lessons either and i think that's that's true kind of of the whole story of america that we're given in this story so that's that's an american tragedy um to the end um so much to reflect on in this novel um the the primarily we have like the failure of religion to direct Clyde into a moral life and the shallowness of this religious education he got through his family. Um, we get the sense that religion is not something that really can be passed on through through education. It's more of a of an individual kind of tension or orientation that's not something that really can go from parents to children. We have a lot here on just the kind of the sexual revolution of of the turn of the century and and how that and how the nation wasn't being honest about that, especially with its kind of folk. It's 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 the way it treated single mothers, which, of course, led to so much of Roberta Alden's tensions and, and her tragedy. Um, the class conflict is a big part of this uh, this story. It runs throughout all of it. Clyde's desire to move up in this kind of capitalist economy and his inability to do so and his frustrations about being slighted by his his rich uncles and their family. And then finally, how his desire, really it's the heart of it, is his desire to move up in social circles that lead him to abandon this, this woman who's nice. I mean, Roberto Alden was not a bad person for Clyde. It's just she wasn't upper class. And so he could never fully embrace her. So many other things to talk about, though. It's thematically so, so rich. And it just uses, it's a great novel because it uses this one incident, one, the life and death of one young man to describe so much of, of American life at the time, from the economic to the personal to the political, the legal and and at every step, he's Dreiser bravely is pointing out the hypocrisies of of American life. That that there's so much is just this facade. So much is just for public consumption. So much is just media, even right. The like the the idea of a virtuous, honorable, moral America, the thing that is demanded of Clyde Griffiths by the public when he's put on trial. The reason he's prosecuted and convicted is because he's deemed a moral failure. That. That morality is only is only surface deep in America. It doesn't go much farther than than that. It's it's essentially it's everything. It's a, it's actually a good novel of the Gilded Age, and that's the the word I'm thinking of now. Is is all this morality is is it just a gilded covering up of of the brutal realities of American life, which it's, and it's those things that pushed Clyde to. His choices pushed him to his fate, and in that sense, it is an American tragedy. It's not just a tragedy for Clyde or his family or, or Roberta Alden. It's it's a tragedy everyone is shares, and I think that's mostly that's Dreiser's point here in the story. It seems to me. So, in my view, a great novel. Um, of course, I'm sure you all have much more you could say about this novel if you read it. So, if you have read it and your things you disagree with me on or want to comment on or, or expand on please please let me know I, I think it's a for me it's a really powerful novel I enjoyed it immensely I'm glad I picked it up and 
and pursued this series. I'm going to be coming back to Dreiser at some point in the future, maybe um, sooner rather than later. We'll look at some of his early novels, such as Sister Carrie, things like that. It, it all depends on what, not, what books I'm going to bring to China. I'm not going to be able to bring my whole Library of America collection, like 150 volumes at this point. I'm going to have to only bring a handful. Um, I'll be going back and forth between Taiwan and, and China. You know, I'll bring books back and forth. So I don't know what I'm going to start with when I do get settled in China and start recording again. Um, I have some ideas of what they might be, but I, I don't want to make any promises now. So it's it's up in the air what the next series is going to be. Um, but but I'll be back. So um, with that, I'm going to uh, leave Theodore Dreiser for now and leave an American tragedy. Please uh, give me your own comments and thoughts about this novel below. Post a review on iTunes or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I will gladly read them and, and maybe even respond to them and give my, 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 my response to you in an upcoming episode. So as always, thanks again for listening. I really appreciate you sharing uh, this novel with me. I'll see you next time with I don't know what it will be, um, but... But we'll see. I'll probably be recording from China, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, thanks uh, for listening once again.